Hey, this is Stephen Jolly. Welcome to episode two of Melbourne Calling. Today I'm talking to Mick Gatto. Hope you enjoy it. Next week we'll be on with Gary Foley. Thanks for doing the interview. Welcome to the to the Fitz. No problem, man. Used I to would... be on by Mill Hanna, the old Carlton um, okay. star. Football, yeah. yeah. No, no. I've, yeah. no just when I was reading your book the other day, um, you talk about 1994, the Crown Casino brought about the end of illegal, illegal gambling in Victoria, gaming clubs, illegal casino, two ops, all wiped out overnight. Put us out of business. You said in many ways I was lost, gambling was all I knew, running clubs and running games. <coughs> yeah, it's true. I now see in the media that the Crown Casino might lose their license. You think it might be back in there with a shot? Like, oh, know. look, I think them days are over. There were different times, different era. I think you know, everyone's moved on from that. So yeah. uh, I don't think we'll ever get another crack at it, but you know, it was good while it lasted. Oh, it sounded fun in the book. It was. To say. That was the, the money used to circulate. It never went in one big hole like it does here. Can't be yeah. cash. It used to circulate and uh, used to keep going around in circles, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, so you're one of the most social people I know. What do I mean by that? Every time I see you, you're always surrounded by friends, family. Like, so COVID must have really hit you hard. The, I mean, no, how, did you, well, how did you cope with it? Like, it's funny you've got that... Uh, that uh, way of looking at me like I'm, I'm not really a social person at all. I'm yeah. actually quite private and uh, yeah, I like you know spending time with my family and a couple of close friends. On, I'm not into socialising and parties and things like that. Used to be when I was younger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but not anymore. It's so, just all so about Do you think family. like Dan Andrews is handling it well? Or, I mean, how do you, are, you, are you happy with the lockdowns? I mean, not happy with the lockdowns, but do you think we're handling it better here than, we, than places yeah, overseas? Well, you know, I mean, the proof's in the pudding and uh, there's been no cases now for a number of days or a number of weeks or whatever, and he must be doing a good job. Yeah. You know? So yeah. you've got to give him credit where it's due. Um, yeah, so have a look at all the other countries around the world. I mean, there's hundreds Half of Half a million thousands. in America, yeah. Jed. Well, that's right. Yeah. So, you know, we've been lucky. We've sidestepped all that yeah. uh, to a certain degree. You know, what are we at, 800 deaths or something? Which is still a lot of people, but yeah, it could have been millions. It could have been hundreds of thousands, so yeah. like every other country, you know. Just to get a bit of business out of the way, you're promoting a big fight in Bendigo in March. Tell us a little bit about that. I promote a lot of fights. We've got another one in a couple of weeks. Uh, Your business card has yeah. got to be one of the best one I've ever seen. Thanks, so, mate. What's that? Mick Adder presents Boxing Promoters. So tell us about the March well, one. Well, I'm actually, I'm actually uh, I'll just tell you about the promoter first. I, I was going to be a promoter and I was voted unanimously to be a, a promoter and I had a blue with... Uh, the uh, Premier at the time, uh, Napfine, Dennis Napfine. Yeah, yeah. And he took my promoter's light, or he tried to take it off me, but I handed him before he did. So anyway, my role at the moment is just to fill the place up. Uh, Anthony Mundine's a dear friend of mine. We've promoted his last four or five fights. Uh, he fights on the 13th of March. It's sold out. Uh, people can see it on uh, streaming. They can stream Mundine.tv or Zarafa.tv and they can stream it live. Um, yeah, look, I, I, I wish he'd give it away, I'll be honest. He's, he's nearly 46. Um, but he's a funny bloke. You can't tell him what to do. He, he gets his set ways and, uh. and that's the end of it. He just wants to do it and no one can talk him out of it. So, when, Back in the day, like when you started fighting at Federation Square, I remember myself being dragged out of bed by my grandfather to watch Foreman Festival and Ali and Festival. Sayer. Festival Hall, I should say. Yeah. Um, today it's all MMA. Mixed martial arts, kickboxing. Yeah, do you think that's sad? Yeah. Do you think that the, 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 the boxing's degenerated? But think you'll ever get back to the days when boxing was Look, the number one box, fighting sport? Boxing was number one purely because uh, 
It was uh, years of the depression and, and uh, people had to fight for a living. Uh, it's a bit different these days. People do it as a sport and reflexes and, you know, different things. Uh, MMA and cage fighting, all that, I don't really like it. Although it's you don't very, like it, yeah? I don't like it. I, I like the traditional boxing, but it's so popular. I mean, we had a show here recently at uh, one of the big stadiums. You've know, got 70,000 people there, that Ronda Rousey, when she fought a couple of yeah, years yeah, ago. Yeah. So, I mean, we couldn't get 70,000 or a boxing match. It wouldn't matter who fought. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So, you know, I mean... It's obviously very, very popular. The public like it. Uh, I'm not. I'm traditional boxer. I like the boxing. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You said in your book that boxing saved your life. Like, what, what did you mean by that? Uh, saved my life. It probably, I don't know if it saved my life, but it certainly taught me a lot of respect. Because uh, as a kid growing up, I thought that I was invincible and, and um, no one could beat me in a fight and things like that. And I was quite aggressive and and not a very nice person, I guess, but um, I started boxing and, and uh, I got whacked on the head a few times and I've seen a few stars and it soon, you know, uh, taught me a bit of respect and it's probably the best thing that happened to me in my life, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, to a lot of outsiders, um, they'd have an image of, you know, how you live your life. What's a day in the life of Mick Gatto nowadays? I mean, is it all like six-inch cigars and Ligon Street or...? I don't I mean, smoke cigars anymore. Yeah. I, I stopped. I stopped a couple of years ago. Um, I just stopped enjoying them for some strange reason. But anyway, uh, a day in my life. Not I get up in the morning, I go for a walk, or I might hit the bag or whatever. I don't do so a lot. So you still do a bit of training, yeah? I, I just yeah. walk. I like to walk yeah. five or six k's. And uh, if I didn't, I'd be as big as fry attack. I mean, I'm big anyway, but I'd be certainly be a lot bigger. But uh, yeah, go for a walk, and then I. We, we spend a lot of time down the peninsula now. Yeah. Uh, I'm sort of semi-retired and, and um, yeah, just go for lunch with my wife or go visit the children, the grandkids. I love spending time with the grandkids, you know what I mean? That's the best thing in the world for me. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, and that's what I do, you know. So, so one, of the, one of your businesses or one of your occupations is debt collection. How does that work? Why would somebody uh, go to you yeah, rather yeah. than somebody out of a Google search for oh. debt collection sort of thing? Well, I don't do a lot of it these days, but uh, unless it's high-end stuff. But the reason they come to us is simple. That, uh, they go to a lawyer and a lawyer looks at them and, and, and tries to work out how much they can take out of them. Well, we operate a bit differently. We try and settle it quickly. Um, we sit down with the people. There's no aggression. There's no standover. There's none of that nonsense that they go on about. And we try and work out a happy medium where both parties can walk away with maybe a bad taste in their mouth, but happy. Yeah. And, and it works out amicable. And uh, that's the way we like to operate. Yeah. And uh, we've had a lot of success. And lawyers don't like us because we... Because you cut them out. We nip them in the bud and do them pretty quickly, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, so look, we're pretty good at what we do, I guess. And, uh, you know. Your other job in this card here is mediation business. So you yep. talk to... Um, you do a lot of that in the building industry. I do a lot, yep. I, uh, <clears throat> I look after a few builders and uh, they pay me to do their IR, which is uh, looking after the unions um, so that they don't lose productivity. So I've got about a dozen builders I look after and um, they pay me a retainer. And um, if the union's got a problem with them or, or they've done something wrong or whatever, they ring me up and they tell me what the problem is, I fix it before they go there and put them in the shed and stop the job and lose productivity. So. Uh, basically, that's what I do, and um, yeah, 
pretty... I was really surprised in your book. I mean, you talk quite favourably about a lot of union leaders, Johnny Sedke. You said Dean Miles should have been... He used to be the leader of the ETU, should be Prime Minister. Yeah, well... You, you said that That's, you know, I was quite surprised when I read that. Well, well, I've got to be honest with you. Sedke, Dean Miles, people of that calibre, that uh, state secretaries, whatever, different unions, um, I, I respect them simply because they wear their heart in the sleeve. You know, Peter Marshall's another one, I mean... They don't do it for the money. They don't care about the money. You know, mm. it's all about their men. It's all about getting better, better um, conditions and safer conditions and more money. And it's not about them. You know, and I, I sort of love that. And I think that that anyone that's running a country with with the um, interest of the people at heart, rather than the interest of the money and their friends and and whatever, um, I think it'd be a big step in the right direction. That's why I've made that comment and I stick to it and I, I, I do believe it. When you do negotiations and mediation in Melbourne, everybody knows you, I can understand yep. you know, that, but in your book you talk about you've done mediation in Singapore, you've done it in London with the likes of Roman Abramovich, he owns yep. the Chelsea Football Club, he's an oligarch, from, a billionaire basically exactly from right. Russia. And not many people over there would know you if you walked down the street, no one would like, most people wouldn't know you. You'd so, be surprised. Maybe, but, maybe, but, but you're right. But the, you're the, right, your methods general. would be different there, wouldn't it? I mean, the, the, there's obviously it's not just your name. You're obviously, yeah. obviously very talented at mediation. I mean, but is um, it different type of mediation over there than say somewhere like here where everybody knows you? Look, I think going over there that they were expecting me, and and they were already foretold who I was and whatever, and so you know we sort of uh, put them on notice, and and they knew anyway, and that's probably why we resolve the matter. Yeah. Um, yeah, but it's interesting. We love doing that sort of thing, travelling around the world and whatever. And we've done the same thing in Singapore with Opus Prime. Yeah, I was just saying that. Um, they both seem to work out well. Yeah, well, Opus Prime, for argument's sake, all the media here would, would jump up and down saying, oh, they won't get to the directors or whatever. The directors flew from Macau to Singapore to come and see us. Yeah. And we sat there with a big whiteboard and they wrote down exactly where all the money was and, and how, you know, they'd have had a lot of big involvement, whatever, and... So we proved them all wrong. Didn't get any money, but, but we got to the bottom of it, you know. The, um, one of the things that surprised me in your book is that you said you sometimes you see a clairvoyant. Yeah. Um, so tell us a bit about that, because I was really surprised when I read that. I well, think I went and seen one yesterday, funny thing, and she told me not to come here today. So, <laughs> uh, nah, look, uh, joking. Uh, uh, I, I have seen a number of clairvoyants over the years, and um, <clears throat> I swear by them. I, they've told me things that that no one could possibly know. And uh, they've spoke about the past, things that have happened, and the future, things that are gonna happen. And, and they've been spot on. Um, and it sort of makes the hair on the back of my neck raise because it's just, just, it's just unbelievable when you think about it, you know? I don't know how they do it. It must be some sort of magnetism in the body. I don't know how they do it. Uh, but they're very spot on and they're really good. Uh, and, and, and I like doing it every six months or so. Yeah, okay. The, 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 the other thing that I was surprised about, because it doesn't sort of mirror with the image that a lot of people would have of you, is with these Nigerians when they scammed you over the $100 bills, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, um, yeah. I, I'm not saying that you're naive or anything, but most people, they think well, Nigerians, they immediately think there's a scam coming, do you know what I mean? Well, this, so, this so, was before, you know, we had the Nigerian... Uh, Everyone was sort of, everyone's a bit toey of them now, but them, them, that time there when that happened, uh, there was no stigma with the Nigerians, you know, there wasn't much. Some of my best friends are Nigerians, just for the record. Oh, just... mate, I've got nothing against them. I mean, uh, like I've said in the book, uh, 
the way they scammed us and, and, and the way they put it together and, and what they've done, you know, I take my hat off to them. They deserve it. Yeah, yeah. You know, they, they were very, very professional at what they've done. And, uh, you know, uh, you know, I mean, if I'd seen them, it might be a different story. But, um, you know, they were very, very good. Yeah. yeah. So they, they had black mon money in black. And they well, said if you put certain liquid on it, it would turn into hundred exactly American right. hundred dollar yeah. bills. Yeah. yeah. So how it happened, a, a bloke came and, and seen me and he told me about it. He said, uh, he said, I've got these Nigerians, uh, the king's son, sons, and uh, they've got about 15 million in, in money that can be converted to American dollars. If you're interested, you know, it probably cost a couple of hundred to put it together and get, get the, uh, the, uh, uh, what's it called? The, the uh, antidote from uh, from the American embassy. Um, anyway, long story short, we met with them. Uh, they come down with a big steel box. They opened it up, and there was all this black money in there. And they said, "Pick a couple of notes anywhere you like." And I picked out several pieces of paper, black paper. They went to the freezer and they pulled out these vials of this liquid, whatever it was, antidote, and they poured it on top of the black money and they washed it all <laughs> under, the, under the tap and sure enough, you know, there was $300 American. And you, and you, tried, and you changed it in the, in the bank? Yeah. I so actually, they accepted I, it? I bought them off them, I paid them the equivalent and uh, we took the one, one to the casino, they cashed it, one to the bank and uh, I forget what we've done with the other one, but uh, it was legal tender, there was nothing wrong no. with it. So, But the rest of them weren't legal, the rest of them were just bits of paper? No, well, apparently I don't know how they'd done that, they yeah, must yeah. have pulled them out of there, so I don't know how they'd done it. Um, the whole lot was paper, but yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. it was made to believe that way. And uh, uh, if we give them 200,000, they, they can go and get the antidote from the uh, embassy, which had washed the whole 15,000, and we'd get half of it or whatever. And, you know, they went and ordered Ferraris and different things from different car dealers. While they were waiting we for it. Yeah. Saying, don't tell Mick and John, knowing very well that they were going to tell us. And look, they were very good at what they'd done. And uh, like I said, they probably deserved it. Yeah, yeah and they were skilled mm. operators. Mm. You know, loyalty and honour, you talk a bit about that in the book. I mean, have you ever seen that in politics? I mean, you've bumped into and dealt with, I'd say, a few politicians in your day. Um, I see very little of it. I'm involved, at, obviously, at a very low, <coughs> local level. I mean, it just seems to me... You Look, know, I, I think uh, there's loyalty and honour there among themselves. You know, I've got to be honest. Uh, um, sorry. Um, I'll turn it off. I think there's loyalty and honour there among them, among themselves more than the general public. Um, you know, I used to like uh, Bob Hawke. Honour amongst thieves. Yeah, yeah. Bob oh, Hawke. Yeah, Bob Hawke, yeah. Um, you know, he used to come to the two-up and different things that, that we were involved in. But he came to your two-ups, yeah? yeah? Yeah, he came once or twice. And, yeah. uh, you know, he, he was a man who wore his heart and his sleeve a bit. He was a bit of a larrigan, whatever they call him. But, but I felt he was honourable and he was a good person, you know? Yeah. And Daniel Andrews, he wasn't bad until he became Premier. I used to talk to him before he became Premier. And he ditched you. And now every time I see him, he runs. <laughs> but it's obviously because of my profile, and, uh, which I understand. But, uh, yeah. so, so this case that you've got against the ABC and the Age, what's that about? I'm soon actually, I get the, I get the judgment on Friday. It's, we've been waiting for it for eight months. Um, the ABC. The ABC, yeah. They publicly said that, uh, that I was a hitman and a murderer and different things. Um, you know, and, and I took umbrance to it and I, I thought, no, I'm not going to let them get away with it. 
and I've taken them on. It's cost me a, a significant amount of money. I don't want any money off them. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I'll take it now. Um, but from the start, all I wanted was an apology, and they put their journalists on notice that you know not to print stuff that's not true. Yeah. You know, I've sued Fairfax, and I've sued the Daily same, Mail. Same, same issue. I've sued yeah. different different uh, tabloids and successfully sued them. And whatever money I, I got to give to my grandson's school or charities or whatever. And they've all stuck to their guns. They've never reported anything again that wasn't true. Mm. They followed up on their stories. And, and, uh, but the ABC, they're reluctant to sort of settle it because they couldn't be seen to be paying me money. Mm. Um, so hopefully now the courts will force them to do it. Mm -hmm. And again, I'll donate it to a charity or whatever. Mm and uh, hopefully they won't do oh, it again. Good luck, man. Yeah. Um, what, what the most fascinating thing in the book, especially around here where the, you got this, just down the road here in Richmond, you got the ice and heroin industry. It's the headquarters of it. Is what it is the, it? The ice and heroin. Oh, North yeah, yeah, Richmond, yeah. it's like ground zero for, yeah. for yep. uh, ice and heroin. The major parties, the Labour and the Liberal Party, it's all the war on drugs, throwing cops at the problem, all the rest of it. And you wrote in your book, I believe the government has a vested interest in the drug business, otherwise they would legalise it. If it was legalised, the jails would empty, crime and street violence would stop, overdose deaths would disappear and the police would have much less to do. Uh, I believe the government should legalise drugs. If someone wants something badly enough, they'll get it. But where there's no demand, there's no supply. Legalising it would fix a lot of things. But it would also put a lot of people, like prison, uh, prison officers, police, lawyers, out of work, and that's probably too hard for the government to do. I mean, that position is pretty radical, actually, compared to what the mainstream politicians are saying. It, it, I mean, it's true. Can, I've been saying that for 30 years. Um, I believe it's true. I believe that um, if someone's a drug addict or whatever, they'll get what they want anyway, yeah. uh, whether it be by mail or on the, on the net or dealer or whatever. Uh, and where there's no demand, there's no supply, like I said. And if you analyse it, I mean, 90% of the crime rate's all drug-related. 90% of the people in jail are all there because of drugs. Um, families are, are, are putting up with so much turmoil with their kids on ice and whatever and turns you know sheep into lions and you know i've seen it firsthand many many times uh, with different families and friends and and, and i'm sure everyone that, that's listening to this i'm sure they'll know someone or they'll be involved with someone that's been affected by drugs and whatever and i just think it's terrible i think they should do something about it you know bring in bring in a death penalty if they get convicted of important large-scale drugs kill them they're killing everyone else. So do you think that the politicians, is just too much of vested interest in doing that sort of policy? Like well, like I said, vested interest, and I, I don't mean that they're drug dealers themselves. I mean, the vested interest is purely that it would ruin the economy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, it would put that many people out of work. Uh, and, you know, really, if they want to fix it up, they could do it overnight. Yeah, yeah. Um, if, if they took that radical view. Just on a different topic, you, you spoke in the book about kids being a product of their environment. Yeah. Um, I mean, what did you mean by that? Do you think that people are born evil or do you think that people get into doing dodgy things no, because of a product of their environment? I mean, I think everyone's born, born the same. You know I mean, uh, it's just the way they're brought up, the surroundings they're involved in. I mean, you know, if someone's got a, a drug addict for a mother and father, they haven't got much hope, have they? Yeah. Uh, if someone's got, you know, whatever. I mean, y you have a look at it. I mean, of course we're all, they're all products of their environment. They all copy their mother and father and, and, and people around and what they're doing. 
they want to do the same. Yeah. You know, if I was an armed robber, my kids would probably want to be armed robbers. You know yeah. what I mean? Um, but you must have met some, or well, you have, I'm sure, met some of the dodgiest buggers around here. I mean, have you ever met anyone that you thought that they were, like, born evil, you know? I mean, there's a TV show literally called Born Evil. Mm. I mean, is there yeah, a minority, is there a small uh, minority of people yeah, that you think, yeah, no matter, they came from a rich or a poor background, yeah. you know, they're dodgy. Yeah, the most evil people I've met are, are, are police and politicians. Yeah. Crime and punishment, I mean, do you believe in the death penalty? I believe in the death penalty, I do. If, if people are, are causing people to die, I believe in the death penalty. If if someone is caught interfering with children or child molesters or things of that nature, maybe not death penalty, but castrate them and, 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 and stop the urge and whatever. And look, I'll go a step further and say, kill them, you know? I mean, we don't need people out in our society, you know, preying on children and things of that nature. Uh, yeah, I do, I do believe in it. So with the justice system, I mean, with Gobbo, for example, do you think yeah. all her cases should be expunged? I mean, it's um, like she got people jailed. She was lagging on them to the police when she was supposed to be defending them. I mean, surely that meant that they had an unfair trial. 100%. And they're entitled to be let out, regardless yeah. of whether they're innocent or guilty. I mean, she's advised them to do what they've done. Like Mockbell, for argument's sake, she advised him to plead guilty. She advised him to yeah. take off overseas because they're going to charge him with murder, you know? And she'd done that with most of them. You know, she tried hard to get me too. And I mean, I never had any dealings with her that way, but you know, what I know about her today, is just incredible that she went to that length and effort doing what she'd done and she was left unscathed to do what she wanted. Yeah. And, and, and look, in answering your question, yes, they should be let go. And um, you know, that's a justice system. You know, you pay a lawyer to defend you and look after you and and, you know, do things the right way and they do it the wrong way, like that informing to the police, well, you know, uh, it's wrong. Yeah. There's nothing worse. The, um, I know, I, I thought, reading your book, I just think about the way you deal with, you've had a lot of tragedy in your life, you've had a lot of terrible things have happened in your life, and what really struck me was when you started your 14 months in remand, you're, you're, you said you were 140 k's at the time. You're yeah. two and a half by one and a half I'm meter. About, I'm about there now. You're getting back there, yeah. Uh, jail cell. Uh, you got a panic attack. You're, you're stuck in there. I said it from your family, from your friends. God knows how long. At that stage, you didn't know how long you're going to be there, and you just worked through it. You just dealt with it. And well, the power of the, the, the power of the mind's very strong, Steve. And if you can talk yourself out of it, and same with people that are sick that have got cancer and sicknesses and whatever. You know, the power of the mind is unbelievable. If you convince you, yourself that you're not sick and you haven't got it, whatever, and, you know, a lot of people overcome these adversities. Do you think that's like a generational thing? Do you think today's generation maybe don't deal with stress as well and, and difficulties as well as back in the day? Or do you think well, that's just... Today, today's generation, they're very spoiled. They've got everything they want. Um, and uh, I, I don't think they were bred or brought up to deal with, with, with stress the way that, that we did you know, growing up when, you know, things were tough and it was different times and, I mean, they were beautiful times. I mean, you know, I, I don't, I don't, uh, you know, I wouldn't look forward to the future. My grandkids, I feel sorry for them, thinking what future they've got coming towards them, you know, with drugs and, and money of price for houses and cost of living and whatever. 
um, you know, I mean, they're going to have a tough time. Yeah. Mm. Just, just linked to that, I mean, back in the day, like a handshake was a handshake. And people, by and large, stuck, by and large, stuck to it. Nowadays, it's like a lot of people sort of get off and ripping each other off. It's, you know, even when, when you watch these reality TV shows, they celebrate backstabbing. Yeah. Do you think that, you, you know, your it's business has the, changed a lot in terms of attitudes? It's, it's, a setting, it's setting the wrong, wrong example. And, you know, a handshake deal went out with button-up boots, I've got to be honest with you. Yeah. Um, there's a handful of people I know in Melbourne that, that, that if they shook your hand and said, you know, uh, they're going to go that way and do that, they'd do that, you know. There's not many left, I've got to be honest. Uh, there's always, everyone's got an angle, everyone's got, you know, a reason for doing whatever they do, and it's just changed. It's not, not how it used to be. Yeah. No. What, what, your lawyer at that time was Robert Richter. He defended me a long time ago at Albert Park, and you've got a tattoo of his name on your body, apparently. Yeah. Like, I mean, uh, there it is. So tell me, what was it about him that you think he's... Because to me, he was the most amazing lawyer I've ever seen in my whole life. I mean, um, for you to put his name Robert, on your body. Robert Richter, uh, he, he's, you know, one of the best barristers around. Uh, he takes pride in what he does. He spends hours on end putting cases together. Uh, with my case, for instance, he used to come in sometimes and he'd say, you know, to sleepless night last night thinking about this and that and whatever. And he just takes, you know, so much time and effort uh, to sort of do the best he can and be the best advocate possible for his client. And that's the way I found him. I love the bloke. Uh, um, he done a tremendous job for me. And uh, I can only highly it's pretty fierce in the, when he gets somebody in the box too. He's great. He, and he loves, he loves anything to do with guns and blood splatter and things of that nature, which, you know, involve my case. He loves all that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, like forensic he, evidence sort yeah, of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's he, just a brilliant mind. He just, he thinks outside the box. You yeah. know? Uh, he's great. I can't, can't wrap him enough. Yeah. I love him. You'd be like a billionaire if you had a dollar for everybody who dropped your name and said, I'm mates with Mick Gatto, pay me up or whatever. I mean, how do you deal with that? It must be a pain in the arse. My name gets thrown around like confetti, unfortunately, and uh, uh, sometimes I've taken action, you know, and, and, and sorted things out where, you know, I'll give you an instance that these old people were told I was going to go around and burn their house down if they didn't pay whatever. I sorted that bloke out. Most of the time, I just let it go in one ear and out the other. Yeah. Otherwise, I'm going to end up, I'll be in jail for the rest of my life, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, unless it's really personal or something. Like that example. Or something to do with children or whatever, I just, you know, I just let it go in one ear and out the other to a certain extent. If someone rings me and says, oh, this bloke said blah, 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 I just tell them, give him a foot up the backside for me, you know? Yeah. So, I deal with things that way, you know? If you could go back and meet Mick Gatto at the age of 20, what advice would you give to him as a man now of, of life experience? Mate, I would never have gone to jail. Uh, I would never have dragged my family through the mud. And uh, I certainly would have done a lot of things differently. Yeah. And do you think you'll ever like fully retire? I mean, I just can't see that fully happening. I mean... Um, yeah, you're probably right. Um, I'll always have some involvement in the boxing or whatever I do. I don't think I'll ever fully retire. Yeah. You're probably right. Mick, thanks very much for doing the show. My pleasure, sir. Thanks, I mate. do this for you, mate. Thank you. Cheers. Pleasure.